Hey guys, what's up? Uh, week 152, and you should ever just have those days where you're like, I'm not feeling it. I'm really not feeling it right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. So excuse King, and it's the lamest excuse of all time. Mr. Parker's just not feeling it. So uh, also I want to let you guys know, let me reach over. Um, the Slaughterhouse Slumber Party Contest is still going on. I have two, uh, two of these to give away. Um, I gave away a few last week to patrons. So and these two, um, basically if you want to enter, all you have to do is send an email to davidparker1986 um, at live.com. There'll be information below. And in the title, put contest and leave your address in the, you know, in the um, box or whatever. Email your address and leave in the title contest so I'll know what it's all about. And you have a chance to win Dustin Mills' newest movie. Lots of fun. Tons of familiar indie faces in there. Haley J. Madison, Aaron Ryan, you know, a bunch of people. And they're all really great in it. I loved it. My favorite Dustin movie. <clears throat> um... Also, I want to let you guys know that um, there was a Fright Night review in here, and we had some audio problems because I, I screwed up with the uh, Taz cam, so the audio might change halfway through. Uh, we had some technical difficulties involving clapping and my horrible um, hearing problems, so yeah. Um, this one is pretty much all dive in the 1985 titles. Um, I haven't been getting as many new titles to review, so there's that. And, uh, there is, of course, the Hammer Times. So, let's hop into this and start with that dive in the 1985. Let me ask you a question, kid. Did you see that movie, Night of the Living Dead? But you know there's a feeling when you're stopping our life.
the way you feel. Forget it, Vic. Just forget it. But I think you're really out of line. Okay, the first one is, of course, from 1985, and this is by Douglas Hickox, um, and I believe that is the father of horror director Anthony Hitchcock, and that is Blackout Hickox. Um, this is Blackout, 1985. Yeah! Um, this one was on the list, the short list to see. I had heard, you know, very little about it. I knew it was a TV movie, I knew it, and when I saw the cast, I was like, okay, this, this is actually going to be pretty cool. This is the second 1995 kind of horror, horror-adjacent movie that Kathleen Quinlan is in. She was warning sign she's really good in this richard widmark is in here and so is keith carradine so that's a really solid cast for a tv movie with the director hitchcock who did um you know he did a bunch of stuff he did theater of blood and some other things zulu dawn so um yeah he has a nice track record and his son has a track record and kind of horror movies as well so um i believe they are father and son i think i looked that up before so here we go. Um, Blackout fits more in kind of the thriller mold, but for a TV movie, like I said, it's very, it's, it's exceptional. Um, it's, it's kind of weird how like the 70s and 80s TV movies were actually very good. So um, the opening of this movie, it opens with a really kind of disturbing murder. Reminds me of like a stepfather kind of deal. Um, the movie with Terry O'Quinn, where a whole entire family's murdered on one of the kids' fifth birthdays. The father has disappeared. He put them in a weird kind of birthday kind of thing. They're all sitting on the couch and, and dressed as if it's a party. And the husband has disappeared. Richard Widmark is the chief of police at the time. And he can't solve the case. Um, he's really bothered by it. Um, we fast forward... Um, Actually, I think what happens is there's an, a car accident. Um, somebody, a hitchhiker gets in a car. You don't really see the driver or the hitchhiker. There's an accident. The driver dies or somebody, we don't know who dies in the, in the accident. Somebody's tossed from the car. They're badly damaged. They have um, amnesia. They can't remember anything. So uh, six years pass. This guy ends up having a relationship with Kathleen Quinlan who works in a hot, I, I believe, I don't know. She works in a hospital of some sort and they start a relationship. He can't remember who he is. He's Keith Carradine. He has had facial reconstruction. Also, Michael Bass is in here as well, uh, who was in another TV horror movie from 1985, Chiller, um, by Wes Craven, so that's kind of crazy. Also, you know, he's in The Warriors, so he's a local kind of police officer. One day, Richard Widmark, who's now retired, he's kind of been forced off, you know, the for he's been kind of pushed down, not, no longer chief, he's like a rent-a-cop, alcoholic, this case kind of ruined his life, so he's obsessed with it. One day, he gets a letter in the mail that, uh, anonymous tip, that, um, you know, the the new guy who, who basically went through amnesia is like a, a great realtor. He gets a, a newspaper clip in the mail 
that says, you know, realtor, and, he, and, and it's kind of like suggesting that this might be the, the missing person you're looking for. So Richard Widmark uh, goes to that small town and starts to kind of interview Keith Carradine and starts to harass him. And it turns into a weird kind of situation where some of the people that are involved have, have some secrets of their own. And I don't want to spoil too much, but there's also a weird person running around in a gimp suit raping people. That's where the, the cover comes from. I was about an hour into this and I was like, what is up with that cover? Is that false advertising just to get people to sit down? But, but it's not. And it generally turns into a really creepy, really well-made kind of horror thriller. I would recommend checking it out. Well acted. It's really driven by the acting and kind of just the unfolding of the story. At points you're like, it's going to be this, it's got to be that. It's more they, And they kind of do a switcheroo where, you know, they basically make you doubt what you're thinking at times and then maybe switch it up so you think other things, which is kind of what you're supposed to do with these things. I will say that the last shot in this movie is tremendous. During the credits, I love the last shot. It's actually a, a wonderful shot that's filming somebody out of a window and it pulls back and it goes and starts looking around the house. I love that shot. I think that's a really cool, unique shot. And I think this one's well worth checking out. Um, it's called Blackout. And the, don't be confused with like the three, four other movies called Blackout. I think he wants to be stopped. <gasps> no! He's a good husband and a loving father. <laughs> He's a time bomb. <gasps> Is it possible that I could be this Jekyll and Hyde? No! 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 My God. You could still be wrong about Devlin. Your Alan Devlin is my Ed Vincent. There's a real possibility your husband could be Ed Vincent. Anybody here? I mean, surely if something like that is happening to you, you're aware of it. Ed Vincent killed him. Just as surely as he killed his own wife and children. Who's to say it can't happen again? Okay, here we go. We have one called Eternal Evil, another VHS, and it's from Lightning Video. I used to love Lightning Video. They released Neon Maniacs, which is one of my favorite guilty pleasures. I guess you'd call it a guilty pleasure. But Eternal Evil, this is actually directed by the guy who did My Bloody Valentine, which is an excellent slasher movie from Canada, of course. And Eternal Evil, this stars pretty much Karen Black is the name that registers to me. And it opens up in a super weird um, uh, kind of uh, opening where it feels like this the camera's just going wild. It's like flying all over the place, going to town in the air and going down and landing and, and kind of going down to people. like Almost like an out-of-body experience. Kind of reminds me of Doctor Sleep when they're kind of astral uh, flying and going to different places and everything like that. And that's exactly what's happening is there's an astral projection happening, which is completely batshit crazy. In fact, the plot of this movie feels honestly the whole plot and the way it unfolds feels really like an art horror film that would be made today by like an Ari Aster or something or a um 
Robert Eggers, just something completely weird like that. It feels like an art horror plot. Unfortunately, the way they execute it is not nearly up to snuff. I, I think that it becomes very talky and boring. And the lead characters, it's just boring to me. He's just not the kind of guy. He's just a middle-aged guy who's a commercial director that wants to go back to making movies. I don't. That whole subplot is boring. That's the reason he gets into astral projection, because his life is so miserable and boring, and he, he takes in Karen Black, teaching him all these things. But then people that he has contact with in life start to end up dead, and it, it becomes a weird kind of situation where I don't want to spoil it, but people are overtaking others' bodies. And that's kind of where the plot takes a weir, real wild turn and there's a couple reveals in here that I thought were actually really well done. But by then, the movie kind of had lost me. I'm not going to lie. It was hard to pay attention to. And, you know, Mr. Parker may not, may not be the most focused person, as you guys can tell. But I started to lose my attention span um, about a forty, about you know, 30 minutes into the movie. But it started to pick up and started to have some interesting aspects to it. And once I think back, I'm like, man, this could really be reworked into something special. The weird camera angles with the astral projection, the kind of taking over of bodies and, and stuff like that. I really really like too and that, again that reminds me of like hereditary and uh it's just and, and dr sleep with the, the astral projection so it's, it reminds me a lot of these kind of really well-made good horror movies today so i mean it's a good story it is a unique idea and it's just the execution and the characters just aren't they don't hold me very much uh, karen black is pretty nuts and wild in the movie like she always is and i guess there is there's a weird like native american kind of music cues to it too that just kind of feel funny but I just I feel like they thought that maybe they're trying to add in some sort of mysticism with it, but I don't feel like that works either. I, I didn't really care for this one, but I f see like a lot of potential. That's Eternal Evil, aka the Blue Man. You make movies a long time ago. I make commercials now. Paul's life has become too routine. He's tired of his job. I've been carrying you and this company for years, and I had enough. His wife. Oh, for God's sakes, Jennifer. Jesus. Himself. He dreams of getting away from it all. You know that when I did Wandering Soul, I started experimenting with astral projection. Some lunatic notion about traveling outside your body? Come on. Janice will change that forever. You will. Be able to control your destination. She helps make all of Paul's dreams come true. You leave me alone. I just buried my wife. You went to the office. You fell asleep. What'd you do then? You call home? You can only be seen if you want to be seen. Nashville's Karen Black and Winston Record of Agnes of God star in Eternal Evil. Sometimes dreams can turn into a real nightmare. Okay, we have another one from 85. We got three VHSs in a row, guys. This is Miami Horror, a.k.a. Miami Golem. And this is actually directed by Aunt Alberto Di Martino, who did this year's Formula for Murder, which is a David Warbeck giallo. And this also has David Warbeck in it. Yay for David Warbeck from The Beyond and um, Fistful of Dynamite and Ratman. Yeah, this is more in line with Ratman. This also stars John Ireland. 
And John Ireland was a classic actor, you know, very well established. Ended up in he ended up in Sherlock, kind of like this, um, and other movies, you know, like the Charles Bronson Messenger of Death and the Graydon Clark movie Satan's Cheerleaders. <laughs> so he's in the movies I know him from. Although he is good in this, I guess as good as you can be, he is pretty Sherlocky. Miami Horror follows the story of reporter David Warbeck. I don't remember his character's name, sue me. But he basically gets put on this case where they find this weird substance that came off a meteor, I believe, or something like that, and they're studying it. It's super weird and wild. And uh, while he's working on it, he screws up and electrocutes it, and it kind of hurts it. And weird things start to happen, like these weird flashes, and it feels like these ghosts or whatever the hell. You don't really know what's going on. And um, he's kind of confused by it. He leaves. Turns out there's this evil kind of businessman and his hitman friend, or, or whatever associate, that is going around killing people and they want this thing because with it they can raise it and cultivate it into this golem creature that is evidently from space that has the ultimate power to take over the universe and destroy everything. So aliens get involved to try to stop that. A psychic woman gets involved to try to help David Warbeck stop this. Mostly an action movie, mostly running around, mostly kind of driving around on airboats in the Florida Everglades, um, you know, getting shot at. But a lot of it is just boring driving and talking and it's it's a lot of pills to swallow and by the third or fourth pill of ridiculousness i started to choke so i started to get a little bored and i was just like oh no i <laughs> this is too stupid for its own good it's kind of like a godzilla movie when you're like i'm in the giant monster i'm in the plant monster coming out of the water and then we have like this psychic thing and you're like you're starting to lose me this is like that times five where it's like all right we got the, the little cultivating germ okay it's a, it's going to be a, a big golem baby thing that has telekinesis okay and telepathy Oh, telekinesis, I'm in. Okay, then we got a telepath lady. All right. And um, then we have this, you know, whole organization. Okay, and then we have aliens. And I'm like, I'm done. You lost me. It's just too much, too fast. Maybe some people enjoy it for its ridiculousness. David Warbeck's okay. The music's kind of decent as well. But I will have to say that Formula for Murder is the better of the Alberto Del Martino movies of 1985. Um, he also did Antichrist and The Chosen and some other movies too. He's kind of a semi-prolific, you know, Italian guy. So uh, Miami Whore, a.k.a. Miami Golan. A golem. I've included the Italian tra uh, the German trailer because that's all there is and I think it's funny. So yeah. Sie kommen uns besuchen. Es kann jeden Tag und überall passieren. Sie haben mich auch letzte Nacht hier rausgerufen, um mir etwas mitzuteilen. Es ist von größter Wichtigkeit gewesen. Ich bin mir absolut sicher, die Experimente, die in Professor Schweikarts Labor gemacht werden, können zu grauenhaften Resultaten führen, die das Überleben der Menschheit in Frage stellen. Eine Stadt liegt in Angst und Schrecken. Sie müssen es schaffen, Craig. Sie haben einen Auftrag zu erfüllen. Elliot, wir springen zusammen raus, ist das klar? Miami Golan. Außerirdische Kräfte. Konzentrier dich, Jaina. Nimm Kontakt mit ihnen auf. Die durch nichts zu besiegen sind. Miami Golem, der Tag des Schreckens. Ich liebe dich, 
Beweise in der Hand. Doch. Die Zeitungen sind jeden Tag voll mit Geschichten von außerirdischen Lebewesen. Ich habe nichts mit den Morden zu tun. Ich arbeite in diesem Labor. Obwohl ich Krimis gern sehe. Das Wesen, das wir geschaffen haben, verfügt über außergewöhnliche Kräfte. Darüber wird sich das Syndikat freuen. Endlich können wir die Regierung erpressen. Craig, du erwartest doch nicht, dass ich an deine Killergeister glaube. Ich habe ein halbes Dutzend Leichen. Der Killer muss aus Fleisch und Blut sein. Das ist Schluss mit der Märchenstunde, ja? Ich kann dir nur berichten, was ich gesehen habe. Hast du dich verletzt? Ja. Miami Golem, wir sind nicht allein. Miami Golem. Okay, we're going to follow up an Italian movie with another one, and we got Amazonia, the Catherine Miles story, another 85 classic. And, uh, yeah, um, I do not have the nice Blu-ray from 88 films, and I probably will be picking it up after this. This is the third Jungle Adventure movie of 85. You think that that kind of would have died out from Italy, but no, we have Cut and Run. We have Massacre in Dinosaur Valley, and now we have Amazonia, the Catherine Miles story. And when I originally saw this, I always disliked this movie. I always thought it was just too cheesy for its own good. And I love the Cannibal Jungle Adventure movies. <laughs> there actually is only one scene of cannibalism in this, and I think there's only like one in Massacre. There's only a couple. I, there might not be any in this one, but in those movies, they're kind of limited on the cannibal stuff. And the other ones are fairly limited on the animal cruelty. Amazonia did not get that memo. So there's a lot of stock footage, or not all stock footage, but there's a lot of stock footage, but then there's also this footage of animals like jaguars ripping apart monkeys and shit. Not pleasant to watch, but the story here is absolutely ridiculous. It's a, it has like 18 AKA names. It's like AKA White Slave something, White Slave Trader. I don't, too many names to, to mention. But what happens here is we have this girl visiting her family from college and her, her father and uh, mother, they all go on a boat ride and I think they're located, I want to say it's Brazil. I don't, don't, don't shoot me. I don't know. Uh, somewhere in South America. And what happens is the uh, family is attacked and killed. They're hit with Karari darts and the uh, father and mother are killed. She is kidnapped and brought among this tribe. And the whole movie is basically, it has like a, um, you know, I guess a wraparound or like a, it's, it's, you know, the, it keeps cutting back to a courtroom case because she's being tried for the murders of two people. And she's telling her story and this is how it unfolds. And there's always hilarious interruptions between the prosecution and the defense. Like, your honor, she did not do this. She was in out of her state of mind. And you know how the Italian dubbing is. Sometimes it's completely out of place like that. But that's basically what's happening. And it, it's just like... The first 30 minutes, I was like, jeez, man, this is so stupid. But then, like, literally, like, 10 minutes later, I was like, I started to get embarrassed because I was like, maybe I was watching it with my arms crossed. I'm like this at first, like. And then by the end of it, I'm like, I really like this. But I'm also a moron. So, like, I, I started to enjoy it. I don't know where the take was. But the music helps. It's, it's one of those deals where it has this beautiful score, like Cannibal Holocaust. And it's just like. And, and it takes over the movie and it's always prevalent throughout and it turns into a really bizarre love story that I actually kind of really ended up finding endearing as it is cheesy so one of the tribes people kind of um 
keep like is obsessed with her and kind of keeps her safe and loves her but she will never forgive him because he was involved with the deaths of her family but there's a twist halfway through where you realize he wasn't it was someone else <gasps> but um there's some fighting there's some ridiculousness uh there's some sex scenes there's some nasty stuff about you know women being deflowered when they're little kids or kids being deflowered when they hit a certain age in the tribe that kind of thing pretty much all the women are walking around nude um you know it's typically a cannibal holocaust ripoff where it will do like all the beats of the things that, that are cannibal holocaust like we got to show this ritual and that ritual except it's not as offensive and and not as um you know well made or anything like that it, it's a super cheesy one and i would even put it in the level of cannibal ferox which is probably uh, way more disturbing than this for sure there is gore some of it's absolutely hilarious like the severed heads originally they look absolutely ridiculous in here um it, it turns into a revenge love story and the end is is actually endearing which kind of made me sad in a way because there's a point where um the character you know goes about her life and she's sitting there watching something um and it triggers an old memory and that for some reason stuff like that always gets to me because it will happen you but you'll just be living your everyday life and then something will like literally be like almost a deja vu moment or very similar and you'll think back to exactly something that was in your life that you might have forgotten about for just a second and then it, you're reminded of it and that happens and for this kind of movie to even have any power like that is very impressive for me so i got to give it up for amazonia um the catherine miles story um i enjoyed it way more than i should have and uh it's nice that i rewatched this one because i ended up liking it i used to dislike it so yeah state of amazonas versus catherine miles accused of the premeditated murder of jose and mary de vega under articles 25 and 91 of the penal code now you listen to me girl whatever you do enjoy it times are bad never give up on life whatever the price live kathy it's the only thing that counts nothing else means a damn thing were you aware at that time that the jungle still has tribes of headhunters yes but they were unreal dangers to me then obvious and only someone suffering from a total mental aberration could have committed such a horrible act and have the strength to do so especially one so young as senorita miles here Please help! Stop! Come back! I'm a prisoner! 
Okay, guys, we have another one from 85, and this is from Kina Lorber. This is Zone Troopers. This is an Empire Pictures title, so you know what that means. Uh, yeah, Charlie Band was producing this bad boy. So it's directed by a guy named Danny uh, Bilson, and I think he only did maybe one more movie. Uh, but uh, this has Tim Thomerson, Art LaFleur, Tim Van Patten in here, so some familiar faces. And this is a World War II sci-fi movie. That's pretty rare. Honestly, it's not, you know, um, exactly what you would really expect from that kind of deal. You know, and on a budget, that's very, very ambitious. Um, the music's by uh, Richard Band. So, uh, yeah, Charlie Band's brother. So I like his scores, but then he's kind of doing a Star Wars kind of deal. Like all the Nazis in here, they have kind of an Imperial March kind of thing going on. So this story follows um, uh, three, pretty much primarily four soldiers in here. Um, the lead is Tim Thomerson. He is like the sergeant who supposedly cannot be killed. There's a journalist who shows up that's kind of um and the journalist is actually in surf too as the dad that's the only other movie i've recognized him from um biff something biff menard or something like that is his name he shows up to do a story on um you know um the rock or something whatever they call tim Thomerson's character um because he cannot be killed there's tim van Patten, who's like the young soldier he ended up becoming a writer director on soprano stuff but he was also most people know him from his stagman from um class of 1984 the lead punk and then we have art lafleur who's in tons of movies um he's the the dad and the blob the guy running the pharmacy he's in a lot of stuff rampage the william Friedkin movie he's in a lot of stuff you recognize him right away and he's very good in this one and essentially what we have here is you know t the character of tim van patten is always reading these sci-fi kind of like um you know pulp novels about aliens and war and stuff and the movie turns into that um they are surrounded by Nazis and almost their entire group is killed except the four of them. They have to survive. They run into, they realize that the Nazis are experimenting on some sort of alien. They find a spaceship. They rescue the alien. The alien kind of looks like a weird grasshopper. The original VHS cover was brilliant because it had that alien on the cover and it said, I want you. And it was like pointing. <laughs> I always, it's always stuck in my mind. It's, I saw this originally when I was a kid because of that. And I always kind of liked it. I hadn't rewatched it in years. But um, uh, rewatching this one, I was like, this is so cheap. Easy. Um, so cheesy. It fits better as like a 60s movie or even a 50s. It's more 50s kind of caliber and it's plot and everything like that. But it's so endearing. It is so dear. It's a movie from the heart. You can tell the writing and directing. And a lot of the, you know, the spaceship looks good. And there's tons of extras and everything and lots of action. And it's not violent action. You know, when people get shot, they fall on the ground. And some people may think that's actually worse because it doesn't portray violence accurately. But in this kind of thing, it feels honestly like a kid playing with action figures. There is some stakes, though. People do die. And it is sad. Um, and I do like the acting. And, you know, it gets to the point of such high-level absurdity that Hitler's there and he gets punched in the face. Like, kind of crazy things like that i just you know it feels like an 80s 50s kind of mix again you know like we had a lot of those in the in the 80s like um killer cross outer space blue monkey the blob um the thing lots of that kind of quality movie like that and all um, most of them are cheesy fun with the exception of the thing and this one is cheesy fun and i mean the blob is way much better than those movies too i uh, kill cons as well but you know this one is just goofier much much goofier than the rest of them but like i have to say it is endearing and I really liked it. Um, Tim Thomerson has an interview with him on the disc, and he talks about the making of it and how he kind of played the character um, from, what was it, Combat or something like that. He went for that kind of deal. And um, it feels kind of legit in a lot of ways. I really liked it. I, I can't help it. Like, it's cute. It's so damn cute. It's hard to dislike. You'd have to be an asshole to dislike it, you know. It's Zone Troopers. Uh, 
And like I said, even though it, it's just rip it off Star Wars music, I kind of enjoyed that as well. So, you know, it, it feels definitely like a, a big chunk of, you know, 80s, 50s mixture and like a movie that I'm surprised really exists. Um, you mix in sci-fi with World War II, not typical, not especially in the 80s. war to another dimension okay the next one i watched on 2b tv for free and this is the second phil smoot movie and this is alien outlaw uh phil smoot did also the dark power this year in 85 which i reviewed and this is the second movie he did this uh stars also has lash larue from the dark power in it and um i don't think i know anyone else the lead in this i think she ended up becoming like one of those kind of like uh t like instructor exercise instructors because i looked her up to see if she's anything else and that's all that popped up i think her name is like carrie something i can't think okay alien outlaw is ridiculous and i guess it's supposed to be a comedy but it feels a little too bit earnest to be a comedy but the comedy is very funny and it feels on it it almost feels like i don't know if they're intentional or not because it, it is kind of goofy and i can't see like the other directors other work they were trying to make it goofy and funny but it's just so awkward still in a sense that it becomes goof unintentionally funny even when it's trying to be funny okay so what we have here is um three mean alien outlaws come from space and uh they end up uh kind of in a feud or a fight with this small town um there is this jesse jameson kind of traveling you know act you know kind of like the old west traveling acts where they do all these kind of tricks with guns and Lash Lou probably came from that world where he you know used a whip and things like that so all these kind of you know tricks and stuff like that Jesse Jameson is this gorgeous woman who runs around runs around in these really like this kind of weird dress short 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 dress and and does all these cool gun tricks and everything like that she ain't the fastest but she's the best um so anyways um somebody that works for her gets killed so she shows up trying to find out where her you know guns are because she's starting a new job she ends up having a conflict with these Alien Outlaws. That's right. Um, the Alien Outlaws are ridiculous. They just run around the woods and kill whoever. And it's kind of funny, equally and scary, when they start chasing after them because they're in these like, big suits and they'll just start sprinting after people. And, and similar to the Dark Power where they had that gimmick where Lash Blue would mess things up with a whip, um, we have this guy who's like the world's best fisherman. So he'll do all these fishing tricks and he uses things like that. Um, the really big guy from the, the fat guy from the last movie who is like a racist, he's also in this and he's like the comic relief. He's really kind of funny in it. And at one point he gets chased by the aliens and he ends up 
up climbing out a window and he's just like, oh, that guy, no, no. He, like I said, he would have fit perfect as like um one of the brothers in the Ernest movies, the Earl brothers, I think. He, he should have, hell, he might have been one of the Earl brothers at one point. I don't know, but he really feels like one. Um, so it does have these kind of, you know, um, ru- um, I would say regional charms to it that I kind of enjoy. It is really goofy. There's a point. I know this was Rift Track. I don't, I don't watch that. You know, I'm not big on uh, people. <laughs> I, I'm not big on the Rift Tracks myself. Um, but there is a really funny point where they destroy a car and the aliens give each other five. And I'm like, what in the hell am I watching here? This is what is going on. Um, but yeah, it's Alien Outlaw. Um, there is, it, it's not without its charm and there is a decent amount of nudity. The director knows when to put in nudity in these kind of movies and he doesn't fail with that. He does it with dark power too. So he, he pl- shows plenty of skin, uh, plenty of cheesy characters and cheesy fun moments and lots of gunplay. There's some cool guns in here, some cool gun tricks. So that is alien outlaws on Tubi and there's a DVD from VCI. Um, you know, I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking, man, when are you going to review Don't Mess With My Sister by Mir Zarchi? And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to review Don't Mess With My Sister by Mir Zarchi right now. And this is Don't Mess With My Sister by Mir Zarchi, um, the director of I Spit On Your Grave, another 1985 movie. That is an old DVD. And this is a, I opened it for the first time to watch. It was like a used copy resealed. So I'm like, okay, here we go. I, I figured it was an exploitation movie is what it's always been advertised. I didn't know if it was a rape revenge because his previous movie, I Spit on your grave so I'm, I'm watching this one and pretty soon i find out this is more of a family drama i was waiting for the hard exploitation to come in but it really never did i think that there is some elements maybe but it's more of a family kind of drama semi-exploitation movie we um this has the most annoying protagonist of all time and throughout the movie i don't know if you're supposed to be on his side or not because the whole movie to me feels like you're supposed to kind of like have almost like a hatfields and mccoys or maybe just a misunderstanding between the families but the lead guy is such an asshole through the first two-thirds of the movie that you don't even blame the other side of the family for doing what they do until they go too far and then you hate them too so what we have here is this guy he um recently got his wife and him had a kid and he 
married her. He obviously doesn't seem too fond of his wife, and he has to work for her brothers. He was promised a partnership in their junkyard, kind of, but they're kind of holding it over his head. He didn't want to marry the sister unless he got that partnership, so there's some beef between them. They're always arguing about it. The two brothers, you know, they seem semi-reasonable, although a bit, you know, they definitely have a crooked underbelly to them. So what happens is one day um, for his birthday, they hire a belly dancer and somehow he gets romantically involved with this belly dancer and they end up, he ends up defending her and they end up killing somebody on accident. And that kind of um, makes this thing more complicated. He starts to see her, starts to have a relationship with her, leaving his wife and the kid at home. Of course, the two brothers and the wife start to get upset about this and this creates this big family turmoil. And um, there's some deleted scenes on here, like 18, uh, maybe it's like 11 to 15 minutes of some are deleted scenes. And it'd be brutal honest that stuff kind of beefs it up to a point where it becomes more coherent in a family drama kind of thing the um mother of the brothers and the daughter and the um, the wife is actually played by pamela testa i believe her name is and she was in um this year's 1985's oracle so that's really cool she played the the villain in that in a really interesting role she's in this one i recognized her right away as i said is that the girl from the the, the woman from the oracle and i had to look it up and it, i was wow it was a new york actors and this made new york so that kind of made me happy to see her pop up in this the lead is kind of like a weird mixture of like you know like he's like a John Travolta type, but he's just really kind of, I hate the character. He's such a piece of crap. He's such a whiny baby. He's just so anybody that's like cheating on their wife in a movie. I just, and he's already an asshole and he's arguing with everybody and I'm grateful for what he has. I just kind of don't like him. You know, I'm sorry. It's just the way they set it up like that. He's just not a very likable person to be honest in this movie. Um, and I started siding with the brothers, even though they were assholes too. Um, the brothers are actually decent actors. And in fact, the acting is not horrible in this movie to be honest and a lot of these people only did one movie so i think the acting is better than you know their careers would suggest um like I said, the bigger brother, I think he's more um, tolerable and more reasonable. But it turns into kind of a big old fight at the very end. It's not overly violent or overly graphic or anything like that. It's just a weird slice of life movie that a lot of people hate, probably because it's um, not as much action packed as exploitation movies they thought. But it isn't a horrible, but it's kind of a weird, kind of offbeat family drama thing um, that I do think is a slice of 1985 for sure. And I would give it a mild recommend. I know a lot of people don't care for it, but I'm sorry, I didn't hate it. Um, and I watch the worst movies ever, so you guys know that. Don't mess with my sister by Mirza Archie. His dreams are falling apart. Between Dino and me, we, we spent 35 years in this place. And now you want to come here and just like that, you want to grab a chunk of it without paying your full dues. Boy, I pay my dues all right. I married your sister, didn't I? Swept away by desire, Stephen's world is about to turn to chaos. What are you guys talking about? What the hell was that for? You fucked up belly dancer, you bastard! A family at war. You lost a beautiful wife. Another woman like her. Never! You know, a man can go to sleep with a woman, but he don't even know her name. It's it's quick. Like spitting. Just tell her what happened. Just tell her the truth. Lust destroyed his life. Nobody ever tells me what I must or mustn't do. 
Look, you, you owe it to me. Owe it to you? You were after me for a fuck, and you got it. Passion led him to murder. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! You're killing him! Come on, stop! Hey! Greed left him a beaten man. I never wanted to marry you! Your brothers pushed me into it! They promised me partnership! Fear pushed him to the edge of insanity. because he wouldn't listen when they said don't mess with my sister a powerful story of love and fury from mayor zarki the writer director of i spit on your grave don't mess with my sister Okay, we're going back to this Crypt of Terror box set, and we're going to go back into 1985, and we're going to talk about the Cemetery of Terror. That's right. This is a BCI release. Um, yeah. I had seen the Cemetery. Most of these are rewatches for me. So I, I was rewatching Cemetery of Terror, and it opened up, and it had um, Hugo Sticklets in it. This is a Mexican movie. This is the first Mexican one I think I've covered for 85. And he's, like, having a nightmare, and he has, like, a weird flashback to a, a monster kind of crazy person escaped from the hospital killing a bunch of people and he's he's hard to put down he's like a mike myers type and he ends up getting put in the morgue and then it's like oh he's okay and then we cut to these kids on like a boat and fishing and partying and i'm like man i don't remember this at all i remember a cemetery in this movie that's all i remember and some kids and halloween so what the hell is going on and uh, about 20 minutes we end up having the, the group of people go to this abandoned house in a cemetery and it is on halloween which kind of confused me because i didn't think that mexico was really big in celebrating halloween i thought they were more into the day of the dead celebration somebody let me know if mexico celebrates halloween or other countries even really celebrate halloween widely like the united states and some other places do so i was kind of just confused by the whole thing to be honest so <laughs> the kids start to party at this house and they're like you know what let's steal a body from the morgue even though they're in a cemetery so they drive all the way to the morgue what is this chud too and it's like and night of the creeps just stop stealing bodies to perform pranks on that that's not a prank is that that should probably be a felony you know like i don't know what whoever started the gimmick in movies where we're gonna steal a body that's the that might be one of the worst plot devices ever. I mean, a children shouldn't play with dead things does it too. So, and, and they're all great movies that do it. But for some reason, it's a terrible plot device. That that weird zombie movie I watched too, I can't think of from like the 70s uh, a while back. That was really kind of obscure too. Also had them steal the body. And it was like a children shouldn't play with dead things kind of um, take. So man, I don't know what it is. So they steal the body. And they steal, of course, that serial killer who is some weird satanic presence. And uh, essentially they do a dumb seance. Of course he comes back to life. Of course he starts to hack and slash and kill them all. And of course Hugo Sticklitz, as the doctor, gets the help of the police chief. And he's like, we got to find this guy. We got to 
find him. Meanwhile, a bunch of kids are trick-or-treating, doing dumb things. They decide to cut through the cemetery. And, of course, you know, that serial killer guy, he's after him. He raises a bunch of zombies to come get him. And we have all hell that breaks loose. The, the doctor and the chief are after him. Um, the serial killer, you know, he's running him up, chasing the kids. And there's a bunch of zombies. So um, the atmosphere is thick with this one. The cemetery is full of fog. It looks cool. The house is abandoned. Some of the kills are fairly decent. It's not the, the best kills, but they're they're pretty good. Um, the acting, I guess, is okay. You know, it's kind of hard to tell in, in this kind of cheesy I don't know, Mexican B-movie. Uh, I, I, it's just kind of, I do like the idea of uh, Halloween in a cemetery. I'm not going to lie. I do like, you know, the atmosphere and I do like some of the kills and the story is just really batshit crazy and bizarre. It's fairly, um, you know, just, you know, point A to point B. It just goes to, you know, runs its course. Hugo Sticklitz is fun. And when he actually encounters the zombies, he's also badass. And this ain't the first time he encountered, um, you know, these types of monsters. I don't want to say Nightmare City is a zombie movie, but you know, he, he fought a lot of kind of creatures that were trying to attack him like this so uh he seems at home doing this it's an enjoyable kind of weird movie and the ending is hilarious i love it the ending's great the ending reminds me almost like the ending in the chilling from 1989 um by the way the ending of the Ch <laughs> the chilling from 1989 is the funniest ending ever i think it's 89 but uh anybody that's seen the ending of that before the credits is, is great but um cemetery terror well worth your time <laughs> This one is um, it's another low-budget one from 85 from Nathan Skiff, or Schiff, and this is They Don't Cut Grass Anymore. 
Yeah, um, really weird freaking movie, of course. Really kind of strange director. He also did The Weasels Rip My Flesh. Uh, these are all made in Long Island and Long Island uh, Cannibal Massacre or just Long Island Massacre. So, uh, yeah, I've seen this one before, and I've seen Weasels Rip My Flesh. He also did, is it Vermilion Eyes or something like that, which never really had a release. So this guy is one of these low-budget guys. Um, and the closest I could put him to is somebody like a Herschel Gordon Lewis. Although at this point he said he had only seen Blood Feast when he made this movie. And it does feel like Blood Feast to a certain extent. Uh, this is a weird movie. It is a comedy, according to the director. Um, I'm glad he made that clear because I couldn't tell if a lot of this was on purpose or not. And it does seem to have some sort of satire or some sort of statement to make about rich yuppies. Which, you know, yuppies suck. And uh, whatnot. So th there's that going on. But we have two gardeners who decide they come from Texas and they come up to like this area, New York, rich city area, and they see all this disgusting yuppies and everything like that, and they decide to kill them off, you know. But nobody's going to stop them because then all their lawns wouldn't be cut. That kind of deal going on. So uh, the lead here is kind of a big guy, and he always has these long soliloquies where he's just going on about, and it's really terrible, like over the top acting where he's like. I can't believe that these people would do this kind of things. And it's just like goes on for like 20 minutes and you're just like everything in this movie is drawn out. And it was because it was shot in five days and they needed to fill in footage. Um, but in, for all intents and purposes, this is a gore movie. In the opening, they show like Barbie dolls being mangled and everything like that. And that's kind of to show the artificiality and the, the gore and everything like that to what's going to come all the people. And so basically, they just attack all these random kind of annoying characters um, and rip their faces off with their bare hands. Um, the, other, the other gardener is just a guy wearing a mask that's constantly drooling. Doesn't really do much except kill. So um, they're ripping off the faces and we have like 10 minute scenes where this be ripping off flesh and ripping off the eyeballs. And actually it's pretty good for this kind of gore film. Um, sometimes they get a little cheesy and hammy with it. And this is definitely purposely comedy in this point when they, they put like a firecracker in someone's mouth and then they cut away and it's just, and then it shows a face like, it looks just like a Barbie doll. Kind of funny, to be honest. Kind of enjoyable in that aspect. Um, this one actually had some features on here. This is an old image disc. Had a commentary by the director, which I listened to, and him talk about how he used to work in a cutthroat area for people, you know, like on a lower rent, like area, and just saw how disgusting people were and how dog-eat-dog-eat-dog-eat dog eat world it was. And, and this is kind of why he wanted to make this movie. Also, um, they have an interview with the big guy in here, and he talks a lot about this movie and, you know, how it actually was kind of making a, a statement and a message on all that kind of thing and he thinks they did a decent job. Um, there's also a ridiculous scene in here where these, like, two cops, and then just one has this whole spiel where he's like, I don't care, but it's just ridiculous. Like, so much of the dialogue is just so ridiculous and awful. And like I said, you could tell it was made in five days, but it's also, you know, really goofy and weird. And maybe someone that really loves Mother's Day might want to watch this. I don't want to compare them because, but you know how a lot of people will say, like, those two kind of characters are, like, a representation of, like, the rotted minds or whatever i maybe this has something to do with you know the the victims are actually pieces of crap i don't know but i could see those two going together there was a movie made uh five ten years ago uh called better living through killing and i felt like it was just a remake of they don't cut grass anymore where it's just like two gardeners going around hacking up rich people i feel like it's very similar to that but they don't cut grass anymore it's dirt cheap i think it's, it was eight millimeter 60 millimeter it looks really grimy uh there's some really cheesy like moments like ridiculously cheesy moments so um if you like 
Gore films that I would recommend checking it out in the vein of Hershey Gore and Lewis, but um, I enjoyed it a little bit more than Hershey Gore and Lewis, I should say. <laughs> not all of them. It doesn't, it doesn't, it does not even close to something like 2000 Maniacs, which I actually kind of really enjoy, but that might just be because the theme music's so catchy. Um, but yeah, that is, they don't cut grass anymore. Good evening. Welcome to They Don't Cut the Grass Here No More. They don't cut the grass. Why is this? Because of our story that you will hear tonight of the strange duo of killers who used to cut the grass and then decided to cut other things instead. Why does such a thing happen in our society today? The fact is that peoples who do wrong things grow other peoples who do wronger things. The filmmaker has decided to make not an example of I've decided in showing uh, clips for these because um, they get taken down pretty quick. But um, I, I'm just going to be very brief on the two guinea pig films from 1985. Guinea pig, um, Flowers of Flesh and Blood. This one's actually pretty infamous because you all know the story. Uh, Charlie Sheen had a bootleg uh, video and he saw it and he's probably high in a hotel room and he thought it was real so he called the FBI or sent it to the FBI. Um, Flowers of Flesh and Blood. The most interesting part about this movie to me really is that it opens up and it suggests that this is a remake um, of a 16 millimeter film that was actually true that they had a 16 millimeter of a real live murder like this and this is a recreation and during the end credits they show like i think uh, um pictures that were supposedly found with the tape so uh, essentially that idea right there that idea that the 16 millimeter tape was found is kind of like not tape but 16 millimeter film footage was found and then um somebody recreated it i think this is like a direct inspiration for stuff like the, um you know um august underground um, and all those kind of weird Bukitsky tapes, like that kind of deal of the real murders being caught on tape. And I know that, you know, Fred Vogel's probably very familiar with the guinea pig movies, and he took that you know, complete another step like that. But, um, you know, Man Bites Dog is also kind of the deal, too. Uh, but it's just weird to have that premise in the very beginning of this, because that is the most interesting thing about it. Um, and then there's a bunch of really grueling, realistic gore effects. Um, the flower, obviously, the motif with the flower, not motif, but the, the, the uh, metaphor, how they say you know it happened when the cherry blossoms here and it's called flowers of flesh and blood and on the murderer this guy dresses the samurai keeps referring to it as a flower uh, the murder stuff as flowers and things like that so he basically chops up a woman in the pieces he starts off drugging her so she can't feel anything he cuts off her hand i believe then he goes to the arms and there's real weird effects of her moving her shoulder she's on a bed this movie would kind of semi be remade um, by stephen bureau and from on films and american guinea pig and this is actually an honor title that they released years ago the whole series actually all you know six films and then the two kind of compilation things i'm making of whatever but um yeah so then he just hacks her to pieces and eventually i think he hacks her head off he disembowels her does all sorts of things and it's funny japan like her privates are covered in and everything like that so it's like it's so weird how violent and grotesque they can get but don't you dare show pubic hair 
whatever. But, uh, you know, this movie is uh, infamous and it's one of the big kind of underground horror films. I had seen it before. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to give this a, um, a recommendation or not. It's very um, influential. It's very infamous. You know, so it, it's kind of sits at a weird spot. Like everybody knows of it and every it, it's very infamous. So if you're into extreme films, I, I think you have to see it. But um, if you're not into this stuff, steer clear. I'm not going to put a trailer on the end because, you know, it's pretty grueling. It's it's not like Amazonia where there's just a naked woman kind of running through the woods. It's just somebody being completely mangled and disemboweled. And YouTube probably won't like that. So, okay, the next guinea pig film is actually didn't want to open my sealed copy. I know that's really weird because it was on YouTube. So I just watched it on YouTube. And this is Devil's Experiment um, from On Earth Films. I don't know why I didn't open it and I'm a dum-dum, but that's just the way I am. Okay, Devil's Experiment. Kind of more of the same, but a little bit different. And I feel like the opening of this one suggests something, too, that's kind of unique. It kind of suggests a martyrs-like situation. But instead of having more of the deep story that martyrs had, it just is more of the exploitative torture porn elements that the other kind of, you know, things would have. Then Martyrs has that, too, you know, that torture stuff. But it's I think it suggests the idea of torturing someone to see how much pain they can endure. And I know Men Behind the Sun is that similar kind of aspect to just do all these awful experiments to see how much someone could take. But what we have here, Devil's Experiment, is uh, it starts off with the women, uh, a group of guys, and they have her trapped in a net. Then it shows her beating her. How many times can she take a slap? How many times can she take a kick? And then it gets worse. How many times, you know, they rip off her, they pinch her skin, rip her nails out. And then it starts getting really nasty where I think they um, burn her excruciatingly nasty burn and then they throw guts all over her then they put maggots all over her or maggots and then guts and they just keep doing these things over and over and repetitive and this poor girl lady is just laying there screaming in agony until eventually it ends with a hot snaring needle through the eyeball which is very realistic and very nasty and looks legit like I think they had to use a real eyeball probably like a maybe a, a corpse eyeball or like a um, cattle eyeball I don't know I don't know what they did but it looks real it looks legitimately real how they framed it and everything like that um not that i've seen many people get their eyeball poked out with a searing hot needle but i can imagine um, that it would look something like this um so again like there's not much to this one um they're both like 45 minutes um and you know what can i say you know it is what it is and um like i said these are more interesting and like the only thing that you can really talk about is the openings how they say that and the special effects and and they do those fairly well but uh, like i said it is just kind of nasty it's nasty and unpleasant and um that's exactly what they're supposed to be so that's guinea pig uh, the devil's experiment can i clap too yeah sure oh <laughs> don't do you're not clapping anymore Sorry, was that real? yeah <laughs> we'll have to fucking hear your ass when i go deaf <laughs> Come on! Stop it! Come on! It's not that funny. We're here to do another heavy hitter from 1985. It is Tom Holland's Fright Night. Uh, 
what can you say about Fright Night? I mean, honestly, it's probably a lot of the... I, I don't know if it's considered an independent movie. Like, I looked up the budgets. That kind of interested me in this kind of thing. Because when you look at, like, a lot of the heavy hitters from 85, they seem to be mild, uh, pretty much independent films. And I know Fright Night probably was low budget. They said it was. But $9 million budget for a horror film was fairly big compared to a lot of the other competitors at the time so i guess this is probably the most mainstream big movie popular movie of 1985 if you ask me so um tom holland was a writer before he directed fright night he worked on stuff like um psycho 2 he's a big hitchcock fan he was actually an actor as well he got a great cast put together with chris sarandon roddy mcdowell um, william ragsdale and um amanda burst and stephen jeffries i think that's pretty much the majority of the cast here and i must first say that God bless Roddy McDowell and Chris Sarandon because I really think that uh, much of the movie is on their shoulders. Um, very unique performance by Stephen Jeffries as well. Um, I, I, I mean there's not much I can say about this. I've already covered this movie before. It was a favorite of mine growing up. It's one of the most iconic vampire movies and one of the most iconic 80s movies and I really think another major you know, positive of this movie, something that becomes very memorable for people is the soundtrack by Brad Fidel, who did The Terminator the year before. So um, I know that you're not the biggest fan of Fright Night, I, 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 but I, I don't understand why. I think that you're seeing tropes that were, you know... You know, I, I don't know where it comes from. Like, I liked Fright Night the first time I seen it, and then every other time I've had to watch it, not, I won't say had, but every time I've seen it, I'm like, I, I know this movie, and I, I don't think that it holds up with repeated viewings. Um... I think that the some of the performances are fantastic. Um, I, Roddy McDowell does is, is that his name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he's Peter great Vincent. as Peter Vincent. Um, Jack Skellington's fantastic in it. Chris it's um, it's a fun movie the first time I watch it, but every every time I'm like, uh, we're just going through the motions, and I feel like it doesn't. I, I I don't know. There's something about it where it's not like Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead or. Um, where there's more like. substance or social things involved. Yeah, there there isn't any layers to this movie. It's a kid sees a monster, well, no one believes the kid, and let, then let the me get the plot real. here. A lot I, of people know, say basically this is just you know rear window with a vampire. Um, geez, what is his name? Brewster. Charlie Brewster is obsessed, kind of a semi fan of monster movies and things like that. He watches a late night TV host uh, and Peter Vincent, who used to be an old, kind of like Peter Cushing, Vincent Price style actor on television. He hosts like kind of Elvira type deal. He's kind of obsessed with him. And then one night um, when he's making out with his girlfriend, he spots out the window, the new neighbor moving in. It's Jerry Dandridge. And it seems very odd, seems very strange. And he starts to think that Jerry Dandridge is a vampire. He finds out he is. No one believes him. And eventually it's up to him, his friends, and uh, they help with Peter Vincent to stop Jerry Dandridge. That's kind of the plot and setup of the movie. Like I said, a lot of the camera work I really like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that um, Tom Holland's one of these directors. Like I said, he was an actor before, so he gives a lot of really... Um, kind of uh, nuanced performances nuanced you know they have new he gets nuanced performances and gives these actors time to do stuff that they normally wouldn't do a lot of emotional stuff for Peter Vincent and even Jerry Dandridge and Stephen Jeffries which I thought was kind of really um, impressive for the time 
Um, the alleyway scene still is um, kind of emotional when he uh, uh, corners uh, Stephen Jeffries, and and you kind of bring back, you know, to a certain extent, they, the, the kind of seductive, almost charming vampire. I know it's never really left, but this is one of the more, you know, prominent, you know, '80s vampires that's super charming. And later this decade, we'd have like Near Dark and Lost Boys, and I don't really see the charm in those kind of vampires. But I love those vampire movies. But still, I feel like. Um, Chris Sarandon really understood how to be like seductive and mysterious and unique, and I don't think that many other actors or you know writers or whatever would have wrote that character in such a way and, and done it so well. Did um the director is Tom Holland? Right? Yeah, he did Child's Play. Has with, he done anything recently? Um, I think he worked on that Trapped Ashes movie to a certain extent, but I can't a hundred percent remember. And he popped up in Hatchet too as an actor and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So he also has a website out there that he runs. Uh, but. I love the movie. I think it's one of the betters of 85s for sure, and I don't think there's really much arguing in that. Um, the music is, is, I think it's perfect. I mean, the movie is super 80s. When you think 80s, yeah. this is one of the most 80s movies there is. I love the neighborhood they chose to do it in. It's a suburban whore, which I also really like. And I would say maybe a little bit upper suburban, almost like a Wes Craven movie. Like yeah, The houses are upper. nicer. It's definitely not mm-hmm. you know, um, poor you know, or working class. It's more middle class or upper middle class kind of deal. Um, um, I, I like the mom. The side characters are yeah. really fun. The, so, the mom, the cop, Billy Cole, they're all really funny and have their great little jabs and lines in here. Is Billy, uh, Billy Cole the goon? Yeah, the, the ghoul. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I liked him in this. Um, I've never seen him in anything else that I'm aware of. Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to come down too hard on the movie because it's not a bad movie and you really should watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that Chris Sarandon does do a fantastic job. Um, the... Like, when you're talking about um, the scene of Evil Ed in the alleyway, I, like, it, it's a really nice scene, but I still don't feel like that his character is shown to be picked on or, like, wanting power, like, how he approaches him with it. You, you can infer it, but it's not directly stated. Well, the character of Evil Ed's kind of interesting because you don't think that they show that he's picked on or a bully, but I do, and I, I think this movie is... In a lot of ways, it's very subtle about their things they do. Um, In the scene where Jerry Dandridge, they're testing with the holy water, he holds it against the fire to test if it actually is holy water because for some reason, I think that he can tell if it's holy water or not by holding it in the fire by seeing certain things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's subtle. And they don't come out and say it. And they also show Evil Ed being upset by him calling him, don't you call me that. Like, you could tell. And and the relationship between Brewster and Evil Ed is kind of strange. Almost like they're friends because no one else would be their friend. They're kind of outsiders, even though at the same time Charlie Brewster has, you know, a really attractive girlfriend. So there's weird things like that going on. And there's also a weird thing that Charlie Brewster goes to Evil Ed to ask him about vampires, but he seems to be obsessed with vampires you know on television all the time so he should know the rules unless evil ed is more the he's obsessed with the occult we kind of understand that but he he's probably more into the real kind of vampires and, and literature and things like that even though he doesn't really believe it but uh you know i i do think that there's the one thing is that they're kind of these weird outsiders and the way they portray evil ed just in a couple moments you can tell he's kind of an outsider and feels left out and that comes into another thing here with you know 
Stephen Jeffries was actually, you know, a homosexual, I believe, and, and Roddy McDowell was as well, and Amanda Verst, I always say her name wrong, from Married with Children, was, uh, well, you know, was, was as well. So it's strange that this movie and, and the relationship they suggest with Billy Cole and Jerry Dandridge mm -hmm. and stuff is, is some sort of, so it's like the gayest 85 horror movie I can think of, actually, as a lot of that stuff going on. Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Oh, yeah, Maybe. yeah. yeah it's definitely, and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 takes the cake. <coughs> it takes the whole bakery. Right. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 isn't even trying to hide it. I think this movie just has the most maybe gay involvement. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it just comes across through the movie, and it works. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of casting that, like, George Romero would do with, like, Miguel Salazar right. or, you know, uh, Dwayne Jones. Like, he, he picks these certain actors that are going to fit that subconsciously, and, and it just works perfectly. I don't know if Tom Holland did that subconsciously, but I think that, you know... Like, it really helps with the emotional breaks in Stephen Jeffries at times when he feels like an outsider in the alley and everything like that. Take my hand. And, and even Roddy McDowell has to face a lot of kind of things in that. He gives the characters these, you know, uh... I, I'm trying to think, you know, these moments where they actually have to change and stuff. He gives them, you know, ter inner turmoil, which I think right. is really good. Uh, my, I don't want to be wrong about, like, rude about this. William Ragsdale does a good job, but he's definitely the weakest link as far as characters are concerned. Not acting. It's just his character is the least interesting when you look at everybody else, I think. He, he's the main guy, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I would have to agree on that. Everybody else outclasses him in nearly every single it's capacity. His character. It, it might be his character. His character is a bit wishy-washy. And I like him better in the sequel. Is he is he yeah, the same yeah. guy in the sequel? Yeah. Because the girlfriend's different, yep, right? Yep. Yeah. Um. Well, we don't want to talk about the sequel. No, no, of course okay. not. I'm okay. just saying I think he does his character. Does, I don't remember the sequel as much as I... Well, I think I've only seen the sequel like once or twice. But this one, I, I think I've seen it like three or four times now. And I'm just like... It's good. I don't think you're going to get anything out of this that you really wouldn't get. Like, you could watch Monster Squad, I think, and get a, a, the same feeling, I think, for it. You know, it, it just, it feels like a... I don't want, I'm not going to start talking bad about the movie, because it's not a bad movie. But it just feels like it's kind of like a Goosebumps made-for-TV movie, and I know it has a higher budget than some of these other 85 films we've been discussing. Um... Those movies, to me, hold up so much more, and they, they were just, I have such a strong attachment to them. Even Reanimator, I think that I have a stronger attachment to, despite it being kind of like a wonky movie for me to watch. Well, Reanimator only cost under a million dollars, and this was nine times the budget. Right, and, and so it's like, why, you know, where does this come from? You know, what, why is it, maybe, you know, it's not the budget that makes the movie, obviously. Um... I think the camera work in here is, is it shows the budget. I mean, it right. shows that it's a higher budget movie. I mean, the cameras and the lighting and the special effects are really good and really mm -hmm. professionally done. You know, Steve Johnson worked on these. So when you have like the transformation between of Evil Ed or the meltdown or you know Jerry Dandridge's makeup, um, I do think that the makeup looks similar to the stuff that they worked on in Ghostbusters too. Like yeah. that almost cartoonish when she has that big kind of grin on her face when she's mm -hmm. a vampire. So I think that's carrying over, and I think it does have a certain element of camp i think this movie does have a lot of camp and like you said it does feel like it could it could be a family-friendly movie but there's nudity and gore and everything like that it's it's mm -hmm. kind of a perfect movie for a teenager i think yeah maybe but, i could see a teenager liking it it does play on the tropes of uh, and the pre-established things of other horror movies from you know hammer to universal so i also mm -hmm. really like that too and there's some really great lines welcome to fright night for real you have mm -hmm. to have fate mr vincent that's and, and most of the great lines are roddy Mc, i mean i got um Chris Sarandon, really. 
there, there are a lot of things, like, plot-wise in this movie where I was kind of confused. Like, the crucifix works on Evil Ed when um, Peter Vincent used it, but not on Jerry Dandridge. Jerry Dandridge is much more powerful. Yeah. And he's scared. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned that, that, that maybe since he's a weaker vampire, it didn't work on him. I, I mean, you don't bring up these questions when you're watching the Hammer Draculas when uh, Christopher Lee runs through the <laughs> Hawthorne bush. You know what I, I mean? Like, I mean... It's just, people get passes. If, if you're older than, like, 19, like, 70, or, like, mm -hmm. you're in the early 70s or you have like that gothic thing people just give you passes because i don't know why but this movie has those flares too and it has like a lot of thick atmosphere so i i do think that that's probably not as fair to judge this movie on any higher standard as far as you know plots are concerned with vampire death and everything and rules because they always change in vampire movies and all the time Right, right. No, it's it, it's more like like from a narrative perspective. Like like if it if it gets him out of the pickle with Evil Ed, but it doesn't work on him, um, and and then like there's other times where it's, you know, why didn't he use a mirror right away when testing for the vampire? Because or, he didn't believe it, and and yeah. Jerry Dandridge gave him a set of rules too. Right, he he did. Um, like he's he states that he's fired from the show, but then like after they kill the vampire, he's back working at the show. Like he's somehow convinced because the higher ups. if you can tell, he was doing a lot of his own movies and a lot yeah. of old vampire movies. Like I said, subtle, subtle. Yeah. You you have to look at this stuff. And at the end, he was doing like bad B movie sci movie right. sci fi movies that he wasn't in. So I think that it was probably pertaining to him not wanting to show things or modern movies or different movies that didn't involve mm -hmm. him. I think it was a little bit of ego in there. Because right. he has an ego. It's when people want to talk oh, to him. He's like, you don't want an autograph? <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And he obviously, he's does. a mixture. His name, Peter Vincent. Peter Cushing. Vincent right. Price. And I imagine, I think they said his middle name is Lee, of course. So it has to be. So mm -hmm. it's just, he's definitely a mixture of these big horror icons. And definitely a take on that. And it's nice, kind of fun thing where the fake vampire hunter has to become a real vampire right. at the same time. Like I said, there's some fantastic stuff in the movie. It's, it's you know, it's the same thing that I had with Free Animator, where, like, these scenes, as we're, as we're filming, when they're writing it, it just, something got lost in translation. They wanted the characters to do this, and they couldn't find a good way for this to happen, and they just kind of either ignored it or glossed over it a little bit. Mm. You know, and I, I don't feel like I, that happens in, like, you know, in Day of the Dead, or even to an extent in, um, Return of the Living Dead. And, and I don't know what it is with this movie and with Fright Night. Maybe that's where I, I'm coming at, is, is I'm given information, and then, like, that information has then changed on me, and I'm like, I'll, I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you. It, it's still a good movie to watch, I, it's just... I do think they could have fleshed out, you know, Stephen Jeffries a little bit more. And they could other have. Stuff. They should have had more stuff with the kids just being the kids, because... They do seem like they're friends, and, but they do seem like they are not exactly best friends in certain ways, a lot of them. Because they're, I guess they're outsiders. And everybody's had right. a friend like Evil Ed where you're kind of friends, you know, maybe in school, but you're not really hangout friends. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. But it, as far as the movie's concerned, it seems like they are the, on, they are the, the only ones that are friends with each other. Because maybe you know, they're just so strange. Yeah, and even the relationship with um, the girlfriend and... Evil Ed, like when we're talking to Peter Vince and trying they're to convince friends. him, they're definitely friends. They have like this like weird friendly squabble. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a cute movie. It, it is really fun. It's just, I, I don't know. I think every time I see, it, I just get more and more bored with it, and I, I don't know what that what where it comes from. Maybe it's because I've watched like fifteen Hammer movies, and it's like. <laughs> Like, okay, we, we got the vampires. I know what a vampire is already. I do like the um, monster mythology in the series, like, as far as mm -hmm. the first two movies are concerned, because Billy Cole is a strange character. Like, 
He is human. He's definitely the one that watches over him while he sleeps, which is, I know that werewolves, they said, would, or dogs or werewolves, they would have to do that in the day at times, right? Mm -hmm. And other monsters and things, and, and just humans and a lot of these kind of things. But Billy Cole doesn't necessarily seem to be human, or it seems to have a weird kind of different kinds of vampires because Billy Cole dies. He's shot, and then he, he says, um, we have you now, and he says, do you? And he, they look down at Billy Cole, after Jerry Dandridge looks at him, he rises again as if he maybe he resurrected his corpse through just mm -hmm. the idea of look. But it seemed like there would have to be more preparing for that before he could do that. Like Billy Cole was, you know, maybe they did some things different to him, or because it's very strange. And he doesn't, he is, he is staked, but he is melting even before he is staked. He's starting to fall kind of apart, right? Right. And I feel like maybe there's a possibility that he's some sort of ghoul. And was it human in the very beginning, or after he died, he, the vampires can resurrect you to be ghouls? I don't really know how it works, but it's definitely strange. And in the sequel, we have some weird characters as well, too, like um, uh, Bosworth, who's Brian Thompson, eats the bugs, and, mm -hmm. and um, John Gray's Grease character, who is like a vampire werewolf who just sticks in between the bat phase, but he looks more like a werewolf and acts more like a werewolf. Is um Does his character... Um, in the first one, is there a character that perishes in the same way with the melting or with the steak? Um, in the second movie. The holy robe, they throw it on the um, one in uh, rollerblades and they oh, melt, okay. but it's different looking. And Bosworth just has full bugs. Right. So I feel like Billy Cole is some sort of ghoul or something. I, I don't know what cool. the hell he is, or just weird kind of proto-vampire. I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of strange, but that always interested me as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like after this movie, every vampire movie had to end with them. Like, I, I like Dracula, it ends with them trying to stop me to get to the coffin, but like this big explosion and yeah. this huge ordeal where they can't let them get in the coffin and, and, light, and the windows being blocked out. I know they did it previously, but I feel like after mm -hmm. this, it was just a must. Right. I know Lost Boys did something like that. Oh, I mean, they, they, I think they were doing these in the Hammer movies, yeah. too, that we've been watching. <laughs> I know you can't give it a rating because you're saving it for your list. Yeah. I'm going to go low and give it like a three and a half. Out of five? Out of five. It's not yeah. horrible, but it's it not is horrible. Low. It is low. I, I mean, all the ones I've said on that, that we've been talking about, I mean, it's my least favorite. Um, I, I don't think that you can watch this movie and get anything that you're not going to get out of any other movie. Yeah, I mean, like, you think that um, Return of the Dead and Day of the Dead just have more mm -hmm. substance? They have more substance. Um, I think that um, Reanimator is, I think, more culturally impactful. Um, you can watch any vampire movie, I think, from Hammer and see the same tropes in them. And I feel like you can get that same experience of, like, the kids versus, like, the monsters. And something like Monster Squad or Lost Boys or, or a Goosebumps movie, even, at that. You know, I... I you know, it's just, it, it's fun, but I think it's a one and done. I don't think so. I think it's pretty great, but I do I want to be a little honest here. It, I've always loved the movie, but it didn't hold as much impact this time around as the last time I watched it, and maybe that's because you were sitting there complaining about it oh, the whole time. <laughs> I paid for a movie with explosions. I didn't pay for any movie in this room. <laughs> All right, but um, see you guys. We're out of here. Bye. Mom, there are people next door. Oh, I guess the new owner's moving in. It's supposed to be very attractive. There are two guys out in the yard, and I think they're carrying a coffin. Charlie, do you want to make love or not? There was a murder last night. Charlie thinks he saw the victim in this house. I saw him carry her body out in a plastic bag. 
body of a young woman was discovered early this morning in back of the Sheridan Mall. The guy did have fangs, and a bat did fly over my head, and a second later, he stepped out of the shadows. Now, don't you see what that means? Wait, let me guess. What? I have a vampire living next door to me, and he's gonna kill me if I don't protect myself. The vampire cannot enter your house without being invited first. This is our next-door neighbor, Jerry Dandridge. Hello, Charlie. What's up? It's this is a nice day. We're outside for hammer time. That's right. Um, four more weeks after this one, um, we're here to do the eighth in the Dracula series, the Satanic Rites of Dracula. Um, this is the direct sequel to Dracula 1972 AD, and it's another modern tale of Dracula. It stars Christopher Lee and, of course, Peter Cushing. And it actually brings back some of the same characters from Dracula 1972 AD, which is a rarity because the only characters or, you know, they bring back usually are Dracula and Van Helsing. And these aren't even the, this isn't even the original Van Helsing. So we actually have the police detective from the last movie played by the same actor. And we have um, the daughter in this played by a different actress, I believe. Um, okay, this is a real weird story. I'd say about 20% of this movie, maybe 50%, if you were just to turn on not knowing what you were watching, you wouldn't think this is a vampire movie. You would think that it's kind of like a spy caper, James Bond-style ripoff movie. Um, at this point, we have this organization that is kind of spying on these occult people. And there's supposedly five of them, and they're doing this weird cult meeting. And they can't get the fifth member photographed because um, they kill a, their spy and he, sh he shows back and everything like that. So they start to look into it and they bring in the help of a cult expert, Peter uh, Van Helsing or whatever the hell his first name is in this one, to help solve the case. And you, you guessed it, who's behind the whole ordeal? It's Dracula. Count Dracula. And he's a vampire. And a businessman. And a very savvy businessman. <laughs> and he has a really weird Eastern European accent that I demand. Lee was probably like, I will not do this role again unless I get something spicy. It's like, <laughs> okay, this one is actually really fun. And, and, and I know a lot of people are like, they don't have the gothic style. It's not like, it's like, you've seen that seven times already. 
And I also want to point out, you know, how people say, like, sequel fatigue and sequels get so ridiculous. Like, Jason ended up in space. Pinhead was in space. It's like, but at the same time, Dracula was in a spy movie. Right. <laughs> number eight. So, you know what I mean? Um, there's not much sexuality in this one. I don't remember any nudity or anything like that in this one, was there? No, this one's pretty tame when it comes to sexuality. It does do a lot of, like, old, important men. So, Hammer can't really sex them up with... <laughs> Peter Cushing, the standing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there isn't, like, any, like... He's infatigable. Right. <laughs> well, we'll come across that later. Um, uh, it is kind of a funny word for him. Is this Christopher Lee's last Hammer movie, then? Mm, oh, no, no. He's into Devil a Daughter, I believe. Okay, all right. Um, next week is Captain Kronos. Captain Kronos. Which they're trying to start a new series with that one. Um, I know a lot of people don't care for this one, but I actually think it's kind of enjoyable and switches things up, and I, I like that they bring back characters that they never brought back before. It doesn't feel like a Dracula movie. It opens up... It, it takes like 30 minutes for Christopher Lee to come into the movie. Right. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel like a Dracula movie. It's not a Dracula movie. It just has Dracula in it. <laughs> He's just in it. And, and uh, what's Van Helsing in it? I don't know his first name in this. It begins with an I, I believe. Sorry, there's a dog outside barking at us. We're going to just have to live with it. Yeah, he's a cool dog. No, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, what is it? Oh, you said Dracula's not really in it. He's just, I mean, it's not a Dracula movie, he's just in it. Yeah, he's just in it. It, it. it is a spy movie. Um, it deals with a lot of, like, really, like, important, like, political figures, um, professors, scientists, like, people who, like, run society and they have, like, a secret cult, and one of them's creating a new, stronger version of the plague, and he's going to spread it around the world to bring about the apocalypse. It's kind of something eerily similar to today. Maybe Dracula's behind it. But I also like it because it kind of shows a little humanity in Count Dracula here that he's so upset at himself that he kind of wants to end humanity and end, and then in turn end himself. Right. So that's kind of an interesting uh, thing in that aspect. And there's also a cool thing that, you know, Dracula has his brides here. That's really cool. And it's kind of like a gallery of clo uh, like cult people. They're all pretty lame, except I think Freddie Jones is the one guy's name who plays like the, the biochemist or whatever. And he's really good in it. I, I thought he was tremendous. He's in like a hundred movies. You'd recognize him right away. But he has like this perfect way of kind of overacting, but somehow keeping it like a, a level where you buy it and he's also just kind of frantic and scary he's not like the guy that was in the um he was he's not like the guy in demons in the mind who's yeah. like i can't believe my mind it's, it's like william shatner on crack in that movie. right it's just like shatner's the only one who can get away with that ridiculousness now i completely forgot there is a lot of nudity in this one there's the whole opening scene um sacrifice ritual where oh, we're like yeah. putting the blood we're like maybe not sacrificing her but yeah there is some nudity that it opens up with and i think it's i don't think it ends with nudity but definitely in the yeah, opening yeah and then because they have the vampire brides which is cool but they, yeah and they bring that weird stupid filter in when they do i i don't like <laughs> the whole aspect that they bring in because they're always trying to get rid of dracula in different ways and the way they get rid of like running water and vampires in this one is really really just too corny and this is the worst Dracula. I, I know I said this before, that there was a worst Dracula demise, but I honestly think this is the silliest Dracula demise of all time. I don't remember his demise. Dude, if I, it involves Jesus. It involves Jesus. I, I, can't, I cannot recall. <laughs> the the Thorns? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Isn't that the worst Dracula? Yeah. It's the cheesiest death of all time. It, and, and it's, like, weird because they set it up, but they set it up so, like, telegraphed. We're like, 
Vampires can be killed by garlic and stakes through the heart and sunlight and the thorns that Jesus wore in his crown. I don't remember what the bush is called. A hawthorn. Hawthorn. And yeah. they throw them in there like, that's weird. And then right. like later. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. And then it's like for somebody that can turn into smoke, you sure are getting pretty tangled up in this bush here. <laughs> and, then, and there's also this weird opening during the title credits where like Dracula's little like shadow things on there. It's like, just so you know, this isn't a spy movie. There's a vampire shadow there. <laughs> But it's just, it's so weird, like, the when uh, Peter Cushing and Dracula kind of face off again. Uh, Peter Cushing and Dracula, like, <laughs> like, Peter Cushing is his own character inside the movies. But they face off again. It's just, like, it's nice to see them face off. But P- uh, Christopher Lee tries to stay in the shadows at first and, mm-hmm. like, keep his... Uh, he has, like, that tacky European accent. Yeah, it's so cheesy. It's like, you know, thank God that left. Yeah, like, like it seems to be revealed, but it is Christopher Lee, which you already kind of knew. Cause, cause he drops the Boris Karloff accent and just speaks normal Christopher it's Lee. It's not even voice. Boris Karloff. It's really it's, bad. It is really bad. But it's kind of funny. But um, I, I, he is not like uh, as well doing that kind of stuff as like a Donald Pleasant or right. somebody like that who can just kind of do a little bit more in accent terms. Well, when you think about Christopher Lee, and like one of the big things to me about Christopher Lee is his voice. And so for him to try to kind of like mask it or hide it, it, it it's weird. It's like... Be the same with Vincent Price. Vincent you want to hear Price. Price. That's why in, in Vibes is one of his best movies, but his voice is disguised, so it's, it's right. weird. But still, excellent movie. Um, and that kind of adds a charm to that movie anyways. But um, I don't, I like this one. I'm not going to lie. It's way better than it should have been to me. Maybe it's just because they switched it up and I was tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. And I expected mm-hmm. you know, it not to be that great. Um, and also, they kill a lot of people I didn't expect. And I was yeah. like, what the hell? Like, a lot of shooting. It's more of an action movie than a vampire movie. But it's definitely like a mixture. They're definitely trying to mix genres here and, and trying mm-hmm. to do... Hammer's always trying to do like appeal to more people and stuff and, and keep with the times but they always seem a little far behind anyways right I, I like it I think that this is it might be my favorite Dracula no I honestly I'm, I'm trying to think Taste whatever the blood. one like which one was Taste the Blood the one with the uh, rich guys who want to who resurrect Dracula then they that was a out. really good one like, this Brides is, like, is also excellent Brides is fantastic but no I, I think that this one I sat through I had the easiest sit through with it and yeah. probably because it wasn't Gothic horror. Well, it was, 1972 wasn't exactly gothic horror either. No, but 1972 I felt like was disjointed. There was a lot of characters doing yeah. a lot of things. Um, and it, it did take a while, I think, for 72 to be set up. And I didn't like the main servant villain guy. Yeah, he was kind of lizardy and annoying. Yeah, he, he was weird. He looked like an actual lizard. Um, <laughs> but I, I like this one. I'm going to go 7.5 out of 10. I don't know what I gave Brides. I remember Brides, I think, was my highest Dracula one. So, whatever I gave that, I'm going to give this. I'm going to give this a four and three quarters. No, you can't give it a that. A four and nine tenths. You can't do that. I can do that. Why can't I do that? What's, where's the rules? There's no way. Show me your bylaws. There's no way this is almost a five-star movie. It's almost a five-star movie. <laughs> it might even be a six-star movie. I remember this being one of the worst Draculas. <laughs> it's probably because this is the first time Warner Archive finally released this on Blu-ray, and they cleaned it up, and it looks really good. Um, mm-hmm. The funny thing is the Warner Archive just always look exceptional, but they don't ever have any features, so that's a little disappointing. But... Sometimes on these old movies, I just like to watch them. Yeah, these were fine. Some of them, some of them, just a hammer. This one, I don't think it needed the features, like some of the other ones where I need to like hear someone explain it to me. We got John Stanley's Creature Features here, and in this book, it's kind of rare. They went by the other title, Count Dracula's Vampire Bride. 
They say it's 1973, and it's two out of five stars, lacking in Hammer's usual gothic flavor and detail. Christopher Lee is surrounded by cheap devil cult and speaks of blasphemy that destroys the mystique Lee established in his earlier films. Lorimar, that's Van Helsing's name. Van Helsing is again essayed by Gaunt. Infatigable Peter Cushing, an extra staying power. The final showdown is a contrived and half-hearted as if director Alan Gibson and scripter Don Houghton hoped this would be a series death knell. It was. Lee never again donned the Dracula cape. Except, I think... Um, Lee, uh, Dress Franco's Dracula was afterwards, but it wasn't for Hammer. Right. Joanna Lumley, Michael Coles, William Franklin, Freddie Jones, a.k.a. the Satanic Rides of Dracula, and Dracula is dead and well and living in London. <laughs> and the tape was from ABC Liberty as the Satanic Rites of Dracula. He was also Dracula in Gremlins, too. <laughs> <laughs> I hear. Remember that deleted scene in Gremlins, right. I hear they suck blood. No, that's not true. That, that's not oh. true at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my best <laughs> Okay, so we're, I folded the book. All right, Terror on Tape by some hack. James um, O'Neill. Oh, come on. James O'Neill. Okay, two and a half out of four, I think this book yep, does. that's not bad. 1973. I'm not reading all that nonsense. Lee's Last Stand is Hammer's Dracula, but the series still had one more entry. The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires to Go is another uneven modern vampire tale. Though a slight improvement on its predecessor, Dracula A.D. 1972. Professor Van Helsing, Cushing, is caught in to investigate the involvement of several government officials of a black magic coven he discovers to be fronted by a revived Dracula who's now out to destroy the entire world via a deadly bacteria. This owes more to Ian Fleming, Sax Romer, and the Avengers than it does to Bram Stoker. But it, TV show. But it does boast the usual fine turns from the Brit horror boys, though Chris has even less screen time than he did in 1972, and a few clever innovations in the usual vampire cliches to recommend it for, humor, or for Hammer Completionist. First released in the U.S. in a cut version called Count Dracula and His Vampire Bride, shooting title... Dracula is dead and well and living in London. That's, I told you that was, that's a great title. I like that. Actually, one. it's a horrible title. Like you would think it's a comedy. You get it. It's like a it's like a um, spy movie. It's weird. I think it should have been called James Blood Agent Six Six Six. Five stars right there automatically. Right. So, anyways, we liked it more than we should have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you go into it like they said, it was great. Eh, it's might, not our yeah. fault. We're idiots. Yeah, we like it. Yeah, we like it a lot. Um, next week is Captain Kronos. Then after that is uh, Frankenstein and the Creature from Hell, which is the last Frankenstein one. And then I think it goes to Legend of the Seven Gold Vampires, the last Dracula, and then we'll end it on To the Devil, a daughter, and we're done. And then we start our next week, next like yearly endeavor. Carry right? Yep. And we start with um, that. That I'm going to explain a little bit here. Um, we both picked 26 movies a piece, you know, 52 plus, you know, together makes 52. So it's a whole year. Um, I guess it'd be season four technically for this, um, show. And Jeremy picked 26 movies he's never seen and he's embarrassed by. And I picked 26 movies I've never seen that I'm embarrassed by. Jeremy has never seen Carrie. And the funny thing is I haven't seen a lot of your picks either. And, um, I've seen Carrie, of course. So we'll start with Carrie because we all want, I wanted to watch Carrie again. I always wanted to see Carrie. I... I, I do not like Stephen King, and, and I've never appreciated a Stephen King-based property movie. Whatever. You're wrong. But Carrie always intrigued me, and I I think it may, might be like the power fantasy element. I know nothing about Carrie. 
I just think it's a girl. She's picked on and she has psychic powers. Is that... It's close. It's close. So I have no... You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not looking up anything about the movie. I've only... Just through cultural osmosis and what I learned on Muppet Babies, um, I always thought that I would appreciate Carrie. Well, so you we'll really see. like Silver Bullet. I didn't like Silver Bullet. <laughs> <laughs> what about Graveyard Ship? No, I don't, I don't even think I've watched Graveyard Ship. I love the Graveyard Ship. I, I did like The Mist. Yeah. I did like that one. Frank um, Darabont usually does. You know, a lot of these directors, early directors in King's work, we're not talking about this. Yeah, I know. We're we can talk about this later. Bye. It's happening right now in London. New York could be next. Or Paris, or Rome, or Tokyo. It's happening right now to this girl. Perhaps it's your turn next. We are not dealing with ordinary criminals. The real force is more sinister, more obscene than any monstrosity you can think of. Lord of corruption, master of the undead. Count Dracula. is too vile. Nothing is too dreadful. You need to know the terror, the horror. what you want, Count Dracula. A last blaze of utter horror and violence, ghastly annihilation of an entire planet. Is this your own death wish? I call upon you to witness my supreme triumph. Okay, guys, let's get into these questions. Eau Claire um, from Patreon wanted me to talk about, um, you know, some typical stuff I'm doing during quarantine. Um, so I guess I'm going to get into this. Um, essentially, I still have to work. I'm considered an essential worker. Um, the funny thing is, um, I know the government is beefing up unemployment, which I'm glad they're doing to help people out during this situation. But what they're not doing is offering hazard pay. So they're expecting people to go um, to work that are essential. And sometimes they're jobs that don't pay well in the first place, like a grocery store clerk, 
Um, or, and then, and there's other jobs that are extremely hazardous right now, like nurse or doctor or receptionist at a hospital or whatever you do there. Those are extremely hazardous jobs. And what I do is I work in a factory, you know, working on truck parts and we have truckers come in. We have people from out of state come in, which can be somewhat hazardous. And we're working with a bunch of other people. So they consider us essential, but they're not willing to pay us like we are essential. And if they're not willing to pay us, then I suggest that we're not essential and they should let us go home. So honestly, that, that's what I have to say about that. But as far as my uh, quarantine, I'm not quarantined. I, I really have to get up and go to work and do everything I typically do. I am taking precautions when I go to the store. I'm keeping my six feet. I'm washing my hands. If I, if I have to do anything, like you have something in your throat or anything, I make sure I'm in the shoulder. I'm washing my hands when I get home, everything like that. I'm, I'm following that kind of thing, and I'm keeping my distance and you know, not inviting people over to my house or not going to places I don't have to go. So that's pretty much what I'm doing. And a lot of people I know, they're sitting there and they're enjoying like, I'm so bored. I wish I could be bored right now, to be honest. I'm sorry to say, and I don't want to sound as rude or unthoughtful, but it's the truth. So there's so many people that are forced to go to work in a hazardous condition right now. And then, and there's so many people that are unhappy and everything like that. So I just, it's just, there's a lot of people that have to go to work. So when people are saying I'm bored or whatever, I do feel bad for people that are stuck in a home with people they dislike or they have trouble with, or maybe being trapped, surrounded by five or six kids. I know that you love your kids, but sometimes it's probably gets a little tired. You can't get rid of, away from your kids and stuff like that. And your kids are getting restless. So everybody's going through a hard time, but My life hasn't changed as much as a lot of other people have, um, unfortunately. Um, So that's I'll basically talk about that. That's all. Then we have Dan the Cameraman. A few questions for you. Were you into horror or westerns first? Uh, Definitely horror movies, I believe. I I wasn't ever hardcore into western movies, really. I liked quite a bit of them, but I didn't start watching them a lot until I got a little bit older, I think. But I would watch some of the same ones over and over again. And then they come on TV, I'd always enjoy them. But I've always been deeply into horror movies pretty much my whole life. Um, what's one film with lost footage that you would like to see the entirety of, um, with lost footage? Oh, um, I know there's a bunch of stuff from Dawn of the Dead that never even made the cutting room floor, like, uh, George Romero and a Santa Claus, as a Santa Claus biker and that kind of stuff. Lost footage. Um, I'd like to see the Friday the 13th stuff reinstated and, um, in HD. That would be a lot of fun because those movies I watched a lot and they're enjoyable. So let's see the special effects. But uh, there's tons of movies with lost footage that I'd really like to see um, completed. So much stuff. Um, probably like every movie ever made, to be honest. Um, how come we've never seen you and George Eastman in the room together at the same time? I'm not calling it a conspiracy, but... Well, I tried to get George on an episode, but he's really busy, you know, in Italy. And they're not... It's way quarantined down there. So just write George Eastman. Ask him if he'll come on the show, all right? Um... Zach Nolan, what are some of the best dummy, worst dummy gags in a movie? For me, the best is a hitchhiker death in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Worst is a dude who jumps out of the hospital window in zombie holocaust. When the mannequin hits the ground, its arm flies off. I love, love, love the dummy death in um, zombie holocaust. I feel like I've seen so many dummy deaths right now that none of them are registering. I remember think I think Naked Vengeance had a dummy death and Death Wish 3 both had dummy deaths that I thought were kind of fun and effective. Um, Crime Wave had a dummy death that I thought looked pretty good, if I remember. Usually the Italian dummy deaths are all pretty pretty bad. Even in Don't Torture a Duckling, which is a fantastic movie, it's kind of a corny dummy death when the character goes off the side of the mountain. So I don't know. Um, those are the dummy deaths that come to my head right away. There's tons of dummy deaths in Dawn of the Dead. But, um, you know, I, I think when they use, make the arm movable when it hits and stuff like that, just that moving limbs, if you give it some sort of like, um, you know, density to it and it moves a little bit, I think that helps quite a bit. Um, zombie Holocaust, not so much. 
Um, Nick Mua, if you had written a screenplay and were directing a film, would you allow another director to take over in a case of illness, or would you, or would you pick? Who would you pick? Who knows Mr. Parker well enough to complete a Mr. Parker production? Um, geez. I mean, I, I've never, like, done any money-wise, so anything I would make, I would be able to obviously postpone and, and come back and finish it. But if I was in a high-level area where I was, like, really sick and dying, I would, I would ask Dustin Mills to finish it because I think he could do a better job, and I think he knows me fairly well, especially when it comes to movies. Um... Would you take over for a fellow director in the case they're ill? I know taking over for another director can have disastrous results in point. X-Men, The Last Stand. Yuck. Um, if if the director told me that I had to, if somebody was like, you got to finish it for me, you got to finish it for me, please, 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 I would, but I wouldn't otherwise. When was the last time a film based on a true story really got to you? For me, it's Chameleon, a true story about a serial imposter who infiltrates a poor white family claiming to be their kidnapped son, um... Yeah, okay. I've actually think I might have heard of that one. When was the last time a film based on a true story really got to you? My name is A by Anonymous. Um that one bothered me to an extent because I thought it was very tasteless in the way it was portrayed. And the Ted Bundy story bothered me because I thought it was pretty tasteless in the way it was portrayed as well. Um I'm trying to think of a positive one. Uh Confessions of a Serial Killer, Rewatching that one, I thought it had some really strong moments that were creepy, um, that kind of scared me, even though it's kind of not even really a true story if you listen to that Henry Doc that's on Netflix. But those ones come to mind. Um, a lot of them do bother me, though, like especially if they're tasteless and they just don't handle it right. And then we have some answers. I asked you guys why you love indie cinema, and if you don't love indie cinema, indie cinema tell me why. Uh, Domino D, I love all the Michael... Oh, okay. Basically, he's going on about a little bit something else. Oh, let me find it. Okay. Not to knock Hollywood. I, I have to find a spot. Sorry about that. Not to knock Hollywood... Okay, I love indie movies because they have so much more passion, more love and passion in them. Not to knock Hollywood, but so many of the big movies just lack heart and vision, and money is a deciding factor in how it gets made. The indie movies are more likely to tackle more controversial subject matter as well. Nick Mua, I've come to enjoy and respect indie cinema over the years. Unlike big studio productions, indie is all about passion and art. Yes, it isn't always perfect, but what it is, what what is? I've seen many a multi-million dollar movie where everybody's phoning in or hamming it up. Some indies have been bona fide classics, um, Carnival Souls, anyone? More recently, I'm thinking of Scott Shermer and Dustin Mills, who always deliver something worthwhile. If I was wearing a hat, I'd take it off for those struggling artists for whom it's actually about artistic integrity. James White. Um, his his uh, message is a little jumbled. I couldn't really make much out of this one. So I like indie films, and a good amount of the time they are amazing. But sometimes I feel like that they do get a jo good job mouth. See, um, try it. They try too hard when it seems like you should do it. Fits you the best. Oh, they. I, I'm not sure what he was trying to get there yet. So probably auto correction and stuff. Um, Alex Powers, they go places Hollywood can't and won't. Rakesh Brown, because they are independent, ain't tied down to Disney Fox, duh. Um, Gino Alfonso, the best stories. Matt Brown, the indie film, tends to lean to lead to more originality opposed to the big budget films that are usually more about who's starring than about the story and overall content. That is why I love indie films. David Gibson, they usually deliver on our artist's true vision or as much as they can with the budget. They are not watered down by corporate interests and can 
explore subjects that big studios will not touch. Samuel Glass Jr., I couldn't say it any better than that. Dusty Mills liked to see the director's vision, for better or worse. Make it unfeathered into the final product. Happens more often on indie pictures. Less cooks in the kitchen. Sometimes you get authentic vision in bigger budget studios, but not often. I also like to see in ingenuity happens in the face of adversity. When you have fewer resources to make your film, you have to get creative. The best indie filmmakers make something out of nothing. Sean McCulley, more creativity. Uh, Doug Wall, less about marketing and more about creativity. Sean Donahue, tits. <laughs> Rebecca Reinhardt, one, because indie film doesn't have to adhere to mass market movie expectations. Two, because the stories tend to be more original and brave. Three, because you most, because mo you most of the time can see that they are made by people coming together only because they love to make movies. Jared Leary, I love indie films. It can be so original and really respect the craft. But most of the time, I just can't get over the fact there's little to no production value. I want a movie to take me places and make me feel a certain way. Unfortunately, to date with indie films, I've only been provided with humor and sometimes decent special effects. And he goes down, I think, later and says, sorry if that upsets you, as I know you love indie films. No, man. No, I, I, honestly, the, the sad truth is most indie films are bad. Most films, you know what I mean? Like, on a budget, sometimes it just becomes... I, the indie films I don't like is when... It's a rehash of some other indie movie I saw a thousand times. Skip Barber. I have to agree with Rebecca Reinhardt on all points. It's been fun being involved with indie movies. Jason Lindbergh. A unique vision of filmmaking outside of mass influence, most especially with back with uh, back indies, as I call them. A lot more passion. A lot more creativity, for the most part. They take chances Hollywood won't. Raw and innovative talent. Zach Puccinelli. I don't give a shit either way. If a movie is good, then it's good no matter who made it. I can read with that too. Timothy Callan, um, he posts the uh, Don't Stand By Me, and he says this movie made me realize to not stand by me. That little poster they've been putting. Stephen McMillan, uh, indie horror slash genre cinema takes films further than the mainstream commercial films, and the filmmakers of indie horror slash genre cinema have a lot of heart, passion, fire, and drive to strongly go onward and show their full ambitions on screen and are debu uh, debuting many future name actors slash scream queens this time of indie horror genre cinema is very exciting time to be caught up right now even though COVID 19 happening is currently going on and working on attempting to ruin everything for everyone will england i like to see people that make a movie film um, film because they had the desire to make something they believed in sometimes when you watch no budget film it's magic you see these people that are just like me and or you and anyone that made it happen and did everything themselves and accomplished something really special not saying I don't like big budget stuff, but low and no budget stuff really inspires me. Jason Siegel, they're one of the few places that you get original stories anymore. Chris Leppert, Dave, I had a massive comment I was typing on here and going into detail of the good and bad of it all. Maybe one day I'll make a video of it, but for now I'll say it's good. I know what you mean. Jordan Bibby, they are made by fans for the fans. Flip the page. Sam Kelly Mills, you can see the artistry the filmmakers put into production. It often leads to a compelling experience. Brian Sattler, you don't need billions to make a good story. Michael Honeycott, passion is on full display in indie films. And then we have an old answer from, uh, Wild, from Wild Will from Chesterfield. Uh, about what your favorite Dustin Mills movie is. He said, got almost every Dustin Mills film. Hard question. Her name is Torment. Her name is Torment 2 Agony or the Hornet's Disciple and the Scar She Left. Haven't seen his newest film or Apple uh, cart yet. Digging through your movie shelves would be top of my bucket list. Got some real, uh, got some killer pickups in the past three weeks. Okay. Yep. So uh, basically he also mentions that um, his other two indie movies that aren't Dustin Mills that he really loves are um, Lung and Flowers.
and found in Headless as well. And then um, I'm going to read this information replies because Extreme Entertainment, who is Todd Sheets, um, he replied to the Zombie blah, um, Zombie Rampage 2 um, review. So I wanted to kind of read his um, because I gave it a negative review. He, want, he kind of replied back to me. So I'm going to read that out loud. Thanks for the review, brother. As you know, I pretty much disown all those films made before 1993. I may have had fun making them and I enjoyed the experience with my friends, but they were pretty awful. I had no intention of releasing Zombie Rampage 2. Robert Wilde, I releasing, convinced me that we needed to do it. So began a cursed project, just like the first one. The first Zombie Rampage was my first feature film, and it was definitely cursed. Unfortunately, this production was just as cursed as the first one, and it was really difficult for Alex and Amanda who put this thing together. If I could tell you all the horror stories, it would blow your mind. I wrote some of the script, and I did some of the produ producing on it, getting locations and such, but you are 100% correct when you say that it doesn't feel like one of my films because that's all that I had to do with it. I very much wanted Alex and Amanda to have a chance to make this movie on their own without me butting in. Having said that, it's a miracle it got finished at all. And I feel very sorry for all the problems that they had to endure. I tried to tell Rob that it was cursed, but he wouldn't listen. LOL. Still, I thank you for your time and your kind words. On the plus side, Alex and Amanda both learned a lot about filmmaking from this nightmare. Better luck next time. Stay safe, my friend. Now, Todd Sheets is such a great guy. He's such a sweet, nice guy, and I felt bad for disliking it. But check out his other movies, um, you know, his older stuff. But more so, his newer stuff, it seems like he wants you to check out, like, House of Forbidden Secrets and Dreaming. Is it Purple Neon or Neon Purple? I do it every time and uh, Bone Hill Road. So he's, he's staying busy. So um, God bless Todd Sheets. And I hope you guys are all staying safe. And uh, yeah, I guess we're going to hop into the update. Hey guys, I actually forgot to ask what the question of the week is. So if this looks like it's edited in, that's exactly what happened. So um, I noticed that Nick Box, he's like doing a um, YouTube documentary about YouTubers and everything like that. So um, he had a bunch of people involved with it. You know, I shot down and uh, I sat down, I shot down. I sat down and did an interview for him. So um, yeah, I just want to know, um, what, who is the most underrated YouTuber you can think of, you know, uh, and I don't want to, I'm not looking for compliments to myself. So don't say me if, even if I, I know that it's probably not me, but still don't be like you, Mr. Parker. I don't, I don't want that. So most underrated YouTuber. Okay. Who is it? Okay, guys, I got one movie to update. You know, it's been a slow, um, you know, week, you know, I guess I'm trying to save a little more just in case you never know what's going to happen. This is the 4k of VFW. Love this movie. Joe Bagos fantastic film it's got a great cast Stephen Lang William Sather Martin Cove Fred Williamson Fred Gwynn and David Patrick Kelly um, also Dora Madison from Bliss such a good movie gory fun entertaining as hell can't wait to rewatch this one I expect it to still hold up you know but uh, yeah I guess we're gonna hop back to the video all right guys thank you very much for watching and as always you guys have a good one hey.